we're going to talk about uh, really what's one of the least understood parts of our planet because it's one of the least explored. And you'll see you can jump into a tiny little muddy, insignificant looking hole and pull out information that's of interest to many scientific disciplines. But beyond that, for the human condition, if you, if you take away all the fresh water that's locked up in ice, more than 95% of the world's fresh water is beneath our feet and uh, cenotes, uh, blue holes, sinkholes, that's how we get into them. But really they're out of sight, out of mind, these invisible places, so we tend not to pay attention to them from a natural resource management standpoint. And there's holes that you find, these windows into these time capsules, that's in the pine yards in Abaco in the Bahamas. We also have ocean holes. This is in Long Island, Bahamas. This is the deepest known blue hole in the world. It's 663 feet deep, and it's right at the ocean's edge. And remember that if you go back about 18, 20,000 years ago to the last, uh, the glacial period, sea level in this part of the world was about 400 feet lower. So these caves only form when sea level is much lower, and as they fill up, they record a lot of information about sea level rise and the climate and even the fossils at that time. Really, exploration involves a lot of you know, old-fashioned trial and error, and scientific inquiry still involves trial and error to a, a great extent. And from a, an evolutionary perspective, uh, we, we are you know, we are learners from repeated play, repeated experiences, and that works well for certain kinds of risks and threats where we can respond by instinct, right, to a, you know, the, the lion's roar at a water hole. We don't think about the trajectory of how long it will take to get to us. We just hear it and we know to move. With a, we see a snake rearing its fangs. We get a notice of a faculty meeting, and it's terror. <laughs> it's terror, right? <laughs> but, but the issue is instinct works well for a lot of things, but it doesn't work well for the type of contemporary environmental threats that we're facing, that we haven't had repeated experiences. They're slow. They're largely invisible. And what's going on right beneath our feet, which is critical to our survival, most people don't realize that's where our water comes from. So we're not. We're, we're not as rational as we think we are and we hope we are, and we're prone to a lot of cognitive biases in our decision making. And you know, sea level rise associated with melting ice in the Arctic doesn't scare most people, and they don't make the connections to how it will actually affect our water supply with salt water intrusion and all sorts of changes in major ecosystems. You know, when, when we are prone to these biases, we're often, it's framing that can really get us. So in the case of climate change, you know, is it an economic or environmental problem? That's how it's been framed. And, and as opposed to maybe a public health problem with a change in disease vectors. So we've got a, a lot of our epidemiologists working with some of our sociologists looking at how changes in climate are moving diseases to different areas here. You know, there's more recently been reframing of these issues, a moral framing, what would Jesus drive? Okay, that campaign for having people think about CO2 or the recent encyclical by the Pope about the environment. So there, there are changes and movements in different directions.
So the ocean is directly connected to our freshwater drinking system. And that's, again, the threat from salt water intrusion from sea level rise. But from a, a legal jurisdictional policy perspective, we manage the ocean and the land very separately. And even scientifically, they tend to be different disciplines that study them. So a lot of what we do at the Marine School, Abbott Center, and other departments is trying to merge these and try to be more inclusive and interdisciplinary in our understanding of these environments. There's clearly just pollutants, when you, especially in less industrialized settings. Uh, you put your garbage out of sight, out of mind, and that's often in these holes that lead directly to our drinking water. Here I'm floating over. 55-gallon drums, garbage cans, that's almost, that's about almost a half a mile into a cave system. And what you see coming through the top of the cave is often people's water pipes. So it's a giant public health issue that people aren't aware, again, of, of this water that's beneath our feet. A lot of work being done out at Rosensteel is looking at what happens when we ingest our drugs, we don't metabolize them all, they end up in the wastewater system, but there's almost 40% leakage in a lot of cities of the, uh, of the water, so it actually gets back directly into our drinking water, or it makes its way through wastewater treatment, but not filtered fine enough to take out some of the chemicals. So our scientists are finding these endocrine disruptors and effects on the fish and marine ecosystems right here, right in Miami, again, from our, our daily drugs. There's fish on Prozac, basically. Um, I mean, I can give, or I hope I've given a bunch of rational reasons why I like to go in these places, but it really, you feel like you're in inner space, and that's, and that's one, two, three, four divers in a room that's just a few hundred feet from the surface. And sometimes you're, you're overwhelmed. Is, I think that's what motivates me as much as the, the excuse afterwards that there's benefit for, for science. So we'll map where there's fossils, the water supply, and you can help zone to help prevent some of these pollutions. That's that hydrogen sulfide bacteria that I mentioned before that's passing through it again. The, the microbes in there, not only do they tell us about early forms of evolution, I work with an astrobiologist, Jennifer McAlady, who's looking at these places as modern day analogs or earth analogs for what types of life might be in Europa or Mars, outer space, these extremophile forms of life. And this is all in one hole. You can find species of blind cavefish, interesting evolutionary adaptations. There's a shrimp that has an eye but no optic nerve, no pigmentation. Why put your evolutionary energy into it if you're in the complete darkness? But we know it must have evolved in from uh, the ocean. So again, it can tell us about how species adapt over longer periods of time. A new class of crustaceans found in the caves, a remipedia. Uh, this is also from our recent trip to Cuba where it's, this is a giant ancient sloth and it was in a far back, hard to get to place. So instead of excavating it, which would probably destroy a lot of the material, we we're able to uh, take photographs but work with engineers who can then render them in 3D and we can do extremely high resolution, we can measure them. So we're working with Will Pessel in the anthropology department here who can then send us back and say, just take that one little piece. So the best place to preserve 
these fossils is where they are now. So we're able to do much more without being invasive in these places. There's Paleo-Indian remains in many places that, where there's no longer descendants. They were wiped out by the Spanish. And not only do we study the fossils, but we also have reinterred many bones that were taken improperly from different places as well. The stalagmites that I mentioned before, those are great recorders, like a tree ring of environmental parameters, so temperature, precipitation. And we're able to reconstruct in parts of the world, in the Caribbean, almost 400, 450,000 years uh, back. So that's a stalagmite where we use uh, uranium-thorium dating, and we can figure out how old it is. And they only grow when the cave is dry, and then it floods stops growing, so we know when sea level has hit certain areas. And then we can look at the ratio of carbon and oxygen isotopes, and this is over in the geochemistry labs of Peter Swart at the Rosenseal School, and look at oxygen, uh, look at what the temperature and the precipitation were on annual resolutions going back a half a billion years. And this gives us a sense of the patterns of natural variability in the climate that let us understand better what's happening with the anthropogenic or the human influence on our climate. One of the big surprising finds we found, that's actually Saharan dust. And it's in massive quantities. And we know that the Caribbean is a depository for this dust. In fact, one of the reasons they have such high asthma rates in the Caribbean is Saharan dust. And we see it sometimes, the haze looking out over the ocean in Miami. But we find it in such high quantities, and we find it correlated in time with what we're seeing of abrupt climate changes in the stalagmites, that it's uh, causing us to rethink one, the sensitivity of the climate, and also what are the main drivers of climate change and the role dust can play, which ties into desertification going on in Africa, in addition to putting CO2 and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So again, this is all out of what might be one or two different holes that are challenging to, to work in, challenging to dive, let alone to do science in. But it's, it's a lot of the kind of work we're doing here. But that's I mostly emphasize the physical science side of things. And as most of us are somehow linked to the academic community, and we assume that this information we use, we work from a model that if we just give the public more information, the policymakers, they'll make the right decisions, thinking of the long term. But I think we really need to think more of what does it take to motivate people? And that's a combination of different disciplines. It takes, we need the scientific information, but we also need the cognitive sciences, the brain sciences, psychology, anthropology, communications. How do we motivate people? Because we, is it's not going to be another study that coral reefs are in danger or that, wow, greenhouse gases are bad for the environment. It really is going to take, how do we not just package information, but there's fundamental questions from environmental psychology of how we can not just get people motivated in the short term, but keep them motivated. So I think that's why, why I, I want to be in a setting like UM, because we have the right pieces to put together to tackle these grand challenges of water, overfishing, and climate change. We have some innovative programs that you can't find anywhere else where we bring together the, the natural physical sciences with the social sciences. So I, I encourage anyone that, who's interested to get involved. I'm always looking for a big dive partner. So <laughs> please.